read our text. We'll go to the Lord in a word of prayer. We're going to be in, uh, in Luke uh, chapter 18. We've been studying through Luke's gospel, doing the journey to Jerusalem. Luke chapter 18, uh, in your, your Bibles, we'll be reading verses 9 to 14. Follow along, Luke 18, beginning in verse 9. Uh, follow along as I read our text for this morning. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee, the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For every one that exalteth himself shall be abased, shall be humbled, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Father, we bow to you as sinners. We thank you for the mercy and the pardon that is ours through Christ. But Father, we come today that you, asking that you would help us to just see our desperation before you. May we see you a God who is high and lifted up. Father, we, we don't come to try to impress you with what we have done. Father, our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. It's my prayer today, Father, that your word would shine a light in our hearts, that we would see you, we would see ourselves, we would have an, an accurate knowledge of our, our need of Jesus. Father, I pray that we as your people would learn to be humble. That we'd be humble as we contemplate your majesty, when we contemplate what you have done to save us, and when we contemplate the fact that we are saved by grace alone. I pray, Father, for Cloverleaf Baptist Church that we would take this on board into our hearts, that we would become a church that is truly centered in the gospel, that we wouldn't judge others based on externals, that we wouldn't be all about just legalistic rules and regulations, but, Father, we would be about the good news of Jesus. I ask, Father, that we as a church would have a culture of discipling, that, that, God, you would forgive us for ignoring each other, for overlooking each other. I pray that we would make it our business to know and to love and to serve and to teach and to help and encourage each other, that we would find ways to speak your truth into each other's lives. I pray, Father, that we would be obedient in telling other people about the good news, and, Father, that we would have a compassion towards this world around us. We thank you for our missionaries, the Zimmermans, and we pray that you would give them fruit as they speak the gospel to your people, the, the Jewish people. We thank you as well for the Burke holders and the great report we had from them on Wednesday, and we praise you for their effective ministry over these last two decades in Tanzania. Guide them and use them, Father, as they, as they move to El Paso and begin a new ministry. Father, open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your law. Help us to be obedient to what we see and what we learn. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Throughout history, there have been uh, long been requirements for people to be and become citizens of various nations. You can be born a citizen because mom and dad were a citizen of the nation, or you can become a citizen through naturalization. And citizenship's always had rights, and it has always had privileges, it's always had responsibilities. And our country has a lengthy process of become a citizen for those uh, who come from other countries. I know this because my dad just recently became a U.S. citizen in the last couple of years, and it was a, it was a long process, right? He lived in the country for a long time, and there, there's forms you have to fill out and interviews that you have to go to, and you have to learn the language and learn all about how the, the government is supposed to work. Uh, it's an immense privilege, and... Um, you know, when you, when you see those, uh, those ceremonies, when people swear the oath to become a citizen, there, there, there's so much emotion to, to finally take that step. Applicants have to prove their residence in the country. They just learn to abide by the laws. They've got to understand the history, speak the language, swear allegiance to the nation. That would be true, by the way, if you were becoming a citizen in a, another country, another place. Well, as we come into this section of the journey to Jerusalem, uh, Jesus begins to focus on this topic of what it means to be saved, or one of the ways we could word it, what it means to be a citizen of his kingdom. He's been preaching about the kingdom, talking about the kingdom throughout the Gospel of Luke. 
he's been saying, hey, repent, uh, because the kingdom is here. And he's saying, I'm doing these miracles, and if these miracles have happened, then we know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. If we come now into Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9, the focus really from here into the middle of chapter 10, as he gets closer and closer to Jerusalem, closer and closer to the cross, will be him calling people to repent and believe and to become citizens of his kingdom, to submit to his kingship, to receive forgiveness. Now, he's going to use a number of different terms. The text we just read, he's going to talk about people being justified, that is, declared righteous. The next section we'll look at next week, he talks about the children. He says, allow the little children to come unto me, verse 16, for of such is what? The kingdom of God. He says, the kinds of people who are citizens of the kingdom of God are people who are like little children. Right after that, right on the heels of that, some rich guy shows up, a rich ruler, a really religious individual, a very pious individual shows up and says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? He asks that question uh, in verse 18. But down in verse Uh, Verse 24, Jesus says, How hardly shall they who have riches enter into the kingdom of God? Now, here's my point. Being justified, being forgiven, entering the kingdom, having eternal life, these are all talking about the same thing, okay? So to be a citizen of the kingdom is to have eternal life. To enter into the kingdom is to be forgiven. These are different ways of describing the same reality, Verse 42, we get a little bit as well. Receive thy sight, thy faith has saved thee. So Bartimaeus gets saved. He is delivered from sin. He's delivered from his blindness by faith. And then, of course, we get the story of Zacchaeus in chapter 19 and verse 9. Jesus says, this day is salvation, deliverance from sin and all of its consequences. Come to this house for as much as he is also a son of Abraham. So to be a son of of Abraham, to be a citizen of the kingdom, to be saved. All talking about the same reality for the Son of Man is to come to seek and to save that which was lost. Over the next few weeks, that'll be the theme that ties together uh, our preaching, is thinking about what does it mean, what are the requirements of being a citizen of the kingdom of God? What does kingdom citizenship entail? Now here's what's interesting. The kingdom of God is not inhabited by the people that we would expect. Oh, it's church people, right? Like, yeah, if you're a member of a church and you're really a good moral person, boom, there's the requirements for being a citizen. Or, you know, you grew up in church, mom and dad were Christians. No, you don't come into the kingdom of God because of birth, right? You don't come in because you were, you were born in the right place or to the right parents. No, ki- kingdom citizenship requires conversion. Salvation is not granted to the deserving, but to the undeserving. Forgiveness is not a wage that is paid, but a gift that is granted, and it is all of grace. So in the coming weeks, we're going to explore what does it mean to be a citizen of the kingdom. And maybe you'll realize as we do this study that, man, I'm not a citizen of the kingdom of God. I've just assumed that. I'm not living like I'm a citizen. So it requires humble confession. We see that in our text today. Next week, we'll realize that it requires childlike faith. With the rich young ruler, we'll learn that it demands dependent surrender. Jesus will then predict his passion one more time, that it requires, it depends upon his atoning sacrifice in our place. With blind Bartimaeus, we'll realize that having our eyes open, being able to see the kingdom of God requires divine intervention. It's not something that we do, it is something that he does to us and for us. And with Zacchaeus, we'll learn that kingdom citizenship requires personal transformation. So let me make this really clear. The kingdom is not inhabited by self-justifying Pharisees, but repentant publicans. Publicans were like the baddest, that's not really, the most bad people of society. Those are the people who inhabit the kingdom. The kingdom is not inhabited by self-important adults who, we understand life, we're self-sufficient, but by helpless babies. It's not inhabited by self-righteous legalists, but redeemed sinners. It's not inhabited by self-sufficient travelers who are like, hey, keep Bartimaeus quiet, but by regenerated beggars. It is not inhabited by self-promoting critics, the people who are sneering at Jesus for hanging out with Zacchaeus, but it's inhabited by the repentant criminal. Now, with any citizenship, any kind of nation, there's going to be a language that's spoken, right? There's going to be 
uh, a dialect that is understood. Even here in the South, there's a way that you, you, you speak in the South that people don't speak this way in Connecticut and vice versa. There is, there, there's a way that language is used. What is the language of the kingdom of God? Now, I'm not referring, well, do they speak Hebrew in heaven? But here's what I mean. What is the, the language, the, 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 the values, that we, the, the way that we speak as Christians that marks us off as Christians? And here's what I want to suggest to you for our text today, verses 9 to 14, that the language of the kingdom of heaven is the language of humble confession. So I want to be a citizen of the kingdom. Well, here's one of the requirements. You've got to learn the language, and the language is that of humble confession, of recognizing I'm a sinner, and i got nothing to bring to the table. That's the requirement. It's not the language of pious self-praise or self-congratulation, but the language of humble confession. That is the language of the kingdom of heaven. And to be a citizen, you must learn to speak that language so let's dive in. Verses 9, it's a, it's a really simple story. Jesus tells a parable about two guys, and they're obviously set in contrast with each other. Uh, you got the publican, you got the Pharisee. They couldn't be any more different. They have these prayers, and these prayers could not be any different. And then you get this outcome, and these outcomes could not be any different. And we're forced to ask, am I more like the publican or more like the Pharisee? Am I a citizen of king, uh, the kingdom of Jesus, or am I a citizen of the kingdom of, of Satan? So let's just walk through the, that structure that Jesus lays out for us. The, the, the first point of the structure here is the, the, the characters. We get these contrasting characters. So look at verse 9. You got your Bibles, follow along. It says, he, he spake this parable, this comparison, this, this earthly story with a heavenly meaning, unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they despised others. So we get the first character is going to be the self-righteous Pharisee, and there's going to be a group of people that Jesus is addressing who should see themselves as he tells, like, oh, there's a Pharisee. We're Pharisees as well. People, notice the characteristics of these individuals. First off, they trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Jesus is exposing and challenging those who felt that their own works and their own character and their own deeds merited standing with God. Look just back a page in chapter 16. Look at verse 14. We saw the Pharisees there, and uh, notice what they're doing. And the Pharisees also, Luke 16, verse 14, who were covetous, they're, they're greedy, heard these things, and they derided him. And he said, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. So they're just like, we want to look good to people. We're going to do all these deeds so people are impressed with us. And Jesus is like, God knows your heart. Your heart is wicked. It's corrupt. So here's these people that he addresses in in chapter 18, verse 9. They're trusting in themselves. The point of their reliance is who they are. If you were to ask them, hey, why should God give you admittance to his kingdom? They would have said, well, we have kept the Torah. We have done good deeds. We have been circumcised on the eighth day. We are part of the nation of Israel. We've gone through the rituals. We offer sacrifices. We keep kosher. They would have looked to the things that they did. That was the object of their hope. And listen, there are millions of self-professing Christians who are exactly the same, who ultimately are trusting deep down in the fact that I go to church. I have been, I've been baptized. I was confirmed. I went to confession. I've prayed. I raised my hand in a service one time and recited some words that the pastor told me to repeat after me, trusting ultimately some deed or action or work or lifestyle that they have committed to. Maybe that's where you're at. This, this parable is spoken to you. Now, when, when, when Luke uses that word righteous, they trusted that they were righteous. He's not just talking about like, hey, they lived a good, decent life. He's talking about having a right standing before God. It's the most important question, right? How, are you right with God? Does God look at you and see you as righteous? There's ultimately only two religions in the world. There is the religion of divine forgiveness. It's by God's grace. That he says, I forgive you on the basis of what Jesus has done. And then there is the religion of human effort and human achievement. That's it. Those are the only two religions in the world. Biblical Christianity is like, you're forgiven. It's grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. And then there's everything else. It's like, yes, trust Jesus, and you've got to do these other things. You need to trust Jesus and be baptized. You need to believe in Jesus, but then you need to keep your justification by following the seven sacraments of the, the Roman Catholic Church or Islam's five pillars. If you do these five things throughout your life, just maybe Allah will see fit to allow you to enter paradise. Or it might just be cultural Christianity saying, hey, be a sincere, decent person. That's what a Christian is. 
vote a certain way, dress a certain way, dislike the, the, the right kinds of people, you're good. No, 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 no. Human achievement. And you might be sitting here this morning thinking, well, I thank God that I am not as other men are. Like self-reliance, I thank you that I'm not like those people who are trusting in their works. Careful. We're falling into the very trap that Jesus is warning against. We begin to think, I am not like those other people who get this wrong. J.C. Ryle had a really good comment. He says, we are all naturally self-righteous. It is the family disease of all the children of Adam. We secretly flatter ourselves that we're not so bad as some and that we have something to recommend us to God. The cure for self-righteousness is self-knowledge, to really know how bad our hearts are. Another characteristic of the the Pharisee in our story, it says, okay, speaking of this parable, those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And then notice the other characteristic, they despised others. Those, these two things go hand in hand. The more you think, I am righteous before God, the more you will see the world as us, and then there's the them. Right? There's the us who are enlightened and righteous and obedient, and then there's the them who aren't. And the Pharisees were good at it. By the way, the word Pharisee just meant separate ones. We are the separatists. They were the fundamentalists of the day who, who stayed away from all of the things that Greek, Greece and Rome was into, and we're going we're gonna to have this little subculture of holiness. They despised others. People who didn't do it quite like them, they looked down on, they despised, they regarded as less spiritual. That's a characteristic of false religion. If you find yourself this morning in your heart thinking, well, there's these, these people, I, at least I'm not like this group of people. At least I don't act like them or hang out with those folks. Perhaps we're falling into that. Those people who have a high regard of themselves always have a low regard of others. Yeah, I'm, I'm righteous. I made myself righteous. You'll begin to think, well, there's those people. There's the them. Who goes into the category of the, the them, the bad people? Let's be on full display, and the, 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 the prayer we'll see in just a minute. Now, the other character in our story is the tax collector. So there's the, the Pharisee who represents those who trust in themselves, their own efforts. By the way, not all Pharisees were like that. There were some Pharisees who genuinely trusted in Christ and came to faith. We'll see that in the book of Acts. But look at verse 10. Two men went up into a temple to pray. Now, Jesus is telling a parable. This is not a true story, but I'm sure everybody could imagine it. One was a Pharisee, we talked about him, self-righteous, and the other was a publican, that is a tax collector. Now, they go up to the temple because if you know anything about the geography of Palestine, Jerusalem is sitting at a higher elevation than everything around it, so no matter whether you're coming from the north or the south, you go up to Jerusalem, you go up the hill to Jerusalem, to the Temple Mount. There were set times, hours of prayer in the temple, 9 a.m., and 3 p.m. So I think we're right to envision them going to one of these times where everybody's going to the temple to pray. Everybody's going that day. Pharisee, man, he's serious about his religion. He goes to church whenever the doors are open. He prays the right things. He, does, he, he dots his I's and crosses his T's. There he is going to the time of prayer. When we, when we hear the word Pharisee, by the way, we, we often automatically think of these really sanctimonious, long-faced People with funny headgear, like, you know, you think the Passion of the Christ, the Pharisees, they're the bad guys. We, but Jesus' audience would not have thought that. They would have, looked, they would have heard Pharisee and heard the model of what it means to be pious and godly. So just keep that in mind when there's this reversal at the end of the story and the Pharisee's the bad guy and the publican ends up being the one who's justified. Um, that would have been a shock, right? The publican, by contrast, they were the worst of the worst of Jewish society. They were traitors who collaborated with the hated and the wicked Romans. Okay, the Romans were violent and oppressive, killed many people, enslaved millions. This is not an empire that was a model of sort of liberal democracy and niceness. No, they, they, they crushed the known world. And the publicans were the ones who were in cahoots with the Romans in taxing their fellow countrymen. They're, they're, they're traitors to their own people. They're exploiting their fellow Jews in Rome's. Basically, what Rome did is they set up a... Uh, an MLM, right? A multi-level marketing plan. You know, you know how those go. People selling you stuff and, and, and all that. Okay, they had a, a multi-level marketing plan to, to tax people. Here's how they did it. They would impose taxes on the provinces. Okay, this province owes so much money. And then they would sort of farm it out and be like, hey, you're in charge of collecting the taxes from there. Make sure we get our money. They then would hire people underneath them in the pyramid who would hire other people underneath them and be like, as long as 
Rome gets their money. They don't care how you go about doing it. Now, here's how it works. Everybody gets their slice of the pie on every level of the, of the pyramid. And so the guy at the bottom of the barrel is the average taxpayer in Judea. You're not only paying the tax that Rome, Rome asks and demands. You're paying to line the pockets of the bottom-level tax farmer and the guy above him and the guy above him and the guy above him. Incredibly unjust. And by the way, you couldn't, you couldn't, there, there, there's no recourse. There's no petitioning the, you know, the Senate in Rome. You're in the provinces. The Roman army's there. If you don't pay taxes, they'll kill you. So you think about who would be the most hated person in the province, the Jewish person who signed up with the Romans and is getting rich off your back. So they're treasonous, they're greedy, they're deceptive, they're, they're notoriously uh, infamous for collecting more taxes than is demanded. Could you imagine that, the IRS being like, hey, we audited you, and not only do you owe another $3,000 for that tax credit you didn't deserve, you got to make that 5000 because me as the, the, the person who you know, took six months to answer your letter... I, I need a little bit of money, too, to help with my car payment. We'd be like, this is wrong. So these greedy, treasonous people who were basically the, the Jewish mafia, they, they, they were banned from all of society, so they banded together with the, the prostitutes, with the sinners, with the worst of the worst. They were the people, when you think the worst people in society, man, the people who are selling drugs to our kids, that, that, that's the publicans. The people who are destroying the fabric of society, that's who they are. The ones that everyone would look at and be like, we don't want them in synagogue. They're banned from synagogue, by the way. The people who would be like, I wouldn't want them sitting next to me in church. That's the publican. Jesus is here. He is going to church, so to speak, going to the temple, praying. So there's the contrast in the characters, but notice their prayer. The Pharisee stood, verse 11, Literally, having taken his stand, so we can almost picture him standing up and getting all of his robes right and getting in the right posture and praying. Okay, he gets, he takes his stand, and he prayed thus with or even to himself. God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are. And he begins to go through and say how he's better than everyone else. Notice some, some features of his prayer. One of them is I, I believe he sought human approval. Here he is standing where everybody can see him in the, probably the court of Israel on the Temple Mount. He's getting as close as he possibly can to the shrine itself, up in front of this crowd of people praying. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with public prayer. We do public prayer as a church. It is a good thing. But there is a danger in praying to be seen to men. Like, man, I'm going to pray. This is going to be really awesome. Uh, there was a story told of a Boston pastor who, quote, offered the most eloquent prayer ever offered to a Boston audience. Uh, there's a danger being like, I want everyone to see what I'm doing. That's what this Pharisee is doing. Taking his stand where everybody can see him. It says he prayed thus with himself. No kidding. God gets a passing mention, and then the rest of the prayer is all about him. Notice the repetition of the word I. I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even this, this, this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Five different times he uses the pronoun I, 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 I. It's all about him. He's not praying to God. He's praying to himself. So he's seeking human approval, but he's focusing on himself. The attitude of his prayer is, God, are you not fortunate to have a saint like me? I'm special. I am so much better than everyone else. You are blessed, God, to have folks like me on your team. And, uh, you know, pat on the back, gold star for me, right? That's his prayer. It starts off well enough, I thank thee, O God. Listen, thanking God is a good thing. We have examples in Psalms. Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not his benefits. We should thank God. And listen, we should thank God for his grace in our lives. God, thank you for saving me at a young age and giving, leading me to a good church. Like, we can thank God, recognizing that everything, anything good in our lives comes from him. But that's not the emphasis here. The emphasis is on himself. Notice what is missing. There's no confession. There's no petition. There's no request. This guy said, I'm not going to bug God with asking. After all, I don't really need anything from him. Um, I've heard people at times say, well-intentioned, but it sort of struck me as wrong. I'm going to pray for the next week, but not ask God for anything. Here's the problem with that. We're beggars, and we desperately need God. So come to him and ask him for things. Ask him for his grace and his mercy. Don't ever get to a point where you think, I'm going to bug God by doing that. No, he's God. We're not. He's the creator. We're the creatures. We are always going to be in need. We're always going to be dependent. A third element of his prayer, so he seeks human approval. He focuses on himself. 
Third element, he compared himself to others. I think that I'm not as other men are. I'm so glad I'm not like the rest of them. So he's sort of pulling the class and being like, I'm glad that I am not like the, you know, the people who are getting D's and F's in this class, so to speak. His self-congratulatory prayer rests on the faulty foundation of comparison. Notice who he compares himself to. He doesn't say, God, I thank you that I'm not like Moses or Samuel or you know, these godly men from the Old Testament. No, he picks like really bad people, uh, extortioners, people who are you know, unjust, adulterers, people who cheat on their... I'm, I'm glad I'm not like them. Many times when I have witnessed to be able to give them the gospel, to be like, hey, do you know the Bible tells you that you're a sinner? Like, yeah, sure, but you know what? I'm a pretty good person. I've not robbed any banks. I've been faithful in my marriage. I work hard. I ask God for his help. What's going on there? Comparing myself to the rest of the class. I haven't robbed any banks. I've been faithful to my spouse. I'm not, there's other people, God, who are worse than I am. At least I'm not like Hitler. I'm not a terrorist. I'm not one of these bad people. They need God's grace, sure, but not me. Careful. We to fall into that, comparing ourselves to others. Paul in, in, in 1 Corinthians has an interesting way of saying it. It says, comparing yourselves among yourselves is not wise. It's a really nice way of being like, that is a stupid, knuckle-headed thing to do because that's not the standard. The standard is God and his holiness, not other people. Sometimes people will say, don't judge me, God. Only God can judge me. That is a terrifying thought, that the holy, perfect, sinless, righteous God of the universe will judge you. And the standard will not be, you know what? You came in the 51st percentile. I'm going to let you into heaven. The standard is his character. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's the standard by which we ought to measure ourselves. Not, how do I do compared to the rest of humanity? How do you do in comparison to God? And if you're thinking pretty good, you don't know God. You don't know God who is holy and perfect, who hates sin in all of its form, whether that is sin externally or sin of the heart. This condemns all of us. The reality is, though this Pharisee regarded himself as not being an extortioner or unjust or an adulterer, he was a cheat who robbed God of his glory. He was an adulterer who had been unfaithful to the God who had created him. And he was unjust. He was a sinner, utterly devoid of God's righteousness. So however you slice it, he fits right into that same crowd. We we like to say, well, there's sinners and then there's me. No, we're in the category of sinners, all of us, all of us. Not to say that all sin is exactly the same, but all sin is sin, and all sin is detestable in the eyes of a holy God. So this is a prayer that is just dripping with self-righteousness. Notice another element of his prayer. It celebrated his works. Come along, and by the way, notice the end of verse 11, or even as this publican. Here's a guy who's maybe with it. He's within eyeshot, who's perhaps even within earshot. I thank you that I'm not like him over there. You like me getting up here praying like, God, thank you so much that I'm not like Ryan Rushing. Like, glad that I'm not like that guy. Um, and like, that's arrogant, right? To, 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 to say that in front of him. I'm glad I'm not like you. So he's celebrating his works. His perceived righteousness is not based on what God has done for him, but what he has supposedly done for God. So look at verse 12. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. You're like, hang on a second. Doesn't the Bible command fasting? Well, if you look at the Old Testament, there was only one fast a year that was required, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So one fast in the year is what God required. This guy's like, God, look, I've gone above and beyond. I've done extra credit. That's going to be worth something, right? Twice a week. According to the, I believe it was the Talmud, um, the Jewish people, serious Jewish people would fast twice a week, probably on Mondays and Thursdays, because that's like the furthest you can get from, from Saturday, the Sabbath. Tithing as well. He says, I tithe all that I possess, all that I acquire. Now, again, the Old Testament required the, the Israel, God's people under the Old Covenant, give a tenth uh, of all, that the, you know, all of their income uh, to support the Levites and the temple and those things. And it, was, it was akin to a tax. By the way, we're not under the Old Covenant. We're not required to tithe. Uh, just, just throwing that out there. The Bible does teach that we should generously give. We should go above and beyond. Generosity is required. Tithing's an old covenant thing. Anyway, this guy was like, I, I don't just tithe of my income. I tithe of everything that I acquire. So I go buy a car. Well, maybe the guy I bought it from didn't tithe on the, the money that he used to buy that. So I'm just going to be doubly sure, and I'm going to tithe on the value of the car. 
Earlier, Jesus is like, you guys are tithing on how much you have in your spice cabinet. You're counting, you're literally counting tea leaves, being like, nine for me, one for God, nine for me, one for God. It's just absurd, right? And he's saying, God, look, I go above and beyond. I've got sort of good works banked up. You ever think that way? Like, I, I could sin because I've actually been really good. I went to church twice this week, so I can kind of, you know, watch a sketchy TV show this week because good works are going to outweigh my bad. That's the way this guy's thinking. It's an unbiblical way to think. And, and before we dunk on this Pharisee, let's look at our own hearts. In so many ways, I'm this Pharisee. Thinking, I'm, I'm holy, I'm good, I'm a pastor. Yeah, man, God, look at me. I, I study your word all week. And begin to think that we somehow earn favor with God, that we earn merit with God by what we do. Beloved, all our righteousness are as filthy rags. We can't say, my good works are somehow earning favor with God. Now, we can please God as his people. I get that. We get to think, well, these things that I do, I'm doing more than other people. Remember what Jesus said back in, in Luke 17? He talked about these people who, these servants who've done everything. Verse 10, Luke 17. So likewise ye, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded of you, you do all of God's will perfectly, which, by the way, none of us have even come close to doing say we are unprofitable, we are unworthy servants. Even if you kept every commandment of the Bible every single waking minute of your life, that doesn't earn any favor with God. Just what he's commanded. It's just duty. Nothing special there. It's easy for us to, to pray like this, this Pharisee. God, I pray for all of those, and you fill in the blank. Whatever you, whoever you put in the blank is the people who you think are, are far worse than you. In society, all those, those, those skeptical atheists who deny your existence, all of those you know, leftist progressives or the transgender, you, you begin to say, those people, they're the ones who are really, listen, except for God's grace restraining the sin of my own heart, that's where I'd be. There's sinners who need God's grace just like you and me. Now, look at the publican's prayer. Again, we're getting these contrasts of the characters, this contrast in the prayers. The publican, the tax collector, hated, standing afar off. So he's not coming into the court of Israel. He's, might even, he's probably even standing in the court of the Gentiles, saying, I'm not even part of Israel. I, I can't even come into the auditorium, so to speak. I'm staying in the lobby because <laughs> I'm so unholy. He's standing afar off. He would not so much as lift his eyes to heaven. He's like, I, I have no business drawing close to God. I have no right waltzing into his presence. But kept on beating his chest. Not in a, oh, I'm awesome, but in a sorrowful kind of way, saying, God, be merciful to me. And the way it is in the Greek, the sinner. I'm a sinner. I'm not comparing myself to anyone else, but God, I'm a sinner. So notice some characteristics of his prayer. He's humble. Stark contrast to the Pharisee's eloquent prayer is this pathetic prayer. Pharisee stands close, tax collector stands far off. The Pharisee stands, takes his stand, probably prays with the right posture. You know, he prays with his head bowed and eyes closed, the way that is culturally appropriate. This guy won't even lift his eyes. So the way that people prayed at this time was with arms raised and eyes upward to heaven. Nothing wrong with praying that way. Entirely acceptable to raise your hands and worship and praise to God, lift up holy hands without wrath and doubting, as in the Bible. But the point here is this guy is so overcome with conviction. God's holy. I can't come close to him. I can't even dare to lift my eyes to heaven. i got to stand back. He's overcome with a sense that God is holy and a keen awareness that he is not. He cowers before God's holiness. James Edwards said, Unlike the Pharisees' roster of merits, the tax collector is characterized by a litany of deficits. You could go all day of all the horrible things he'd done, all the things he'd been complicit in, all the oppression that he had supported, all the abuse that he had perpetrated. Whereas the Pharisee tries to impress God with his catalog of good deeds, the, Pharisee, the publican, rather, literally beats himself up. Beating on the chest is a way in the ancient world of expressing profound sorrow. Like, I've got nothing. 
Here's a man convinced that he is a sinner. You're like, man, this guy's really down on himself. He needs to go take some self-esteem classes. No, he is seeing himself as he really is. This is God and this is me, and I deserve nothing but his wrath. He makes no attempt to negotiate with God. He does not even offer a thanksgiving. He makes no pretense of comparing himself to people around him. He's humble. As far as he was concerned, other people's sins were not even in the equation. Be merciful to me, the sinner. I'm not worried about other people. I'm not comparing myself. I'm not trying to hedge my bets by saying they're worse than I am. There's other tax collectors who are far more unscrupulous. Listen, you can always find someone who's worse than you are. Make you feel good. The standard is God, not other people. So what does he do? The other characteristic is he begs for mercy. Be merciful to me, the sinner. That's it. Be merciful. Now, it's not the normal word for mercy. There's a couple different words Greek can have for mercy. It's the idea of have pity or compassion or see me in my plight. This is a word that has the idea of Be merciful in such a way that you pardon me, that you are propitious towards me, that you are favorable towards me. We come to God as needy sinners, so we ought to plead as needy sinners. J.C. Ryle states this, It may be suitable, like the prayer of uh, of the Pharisee, it may be suitable for an angel, but it is not suitable for a sinner. Come to God with your need and with your sin. He already knows about it. Be merciful to me. It's personal. Not just be merciful to us. We can, be, we can sometimes be so fixated on the sins of our culture and our society. God, would you forgive the sins of America? Which is really a really clever way of not focusing on my sins. And those people in Washington, they really need to get right with God. Okay, well, what about your heart? What about me before a holy God? The publican's not concerned with the sins of his culture, the sins of his neighbor, but his own sins. So this term, be merciful, halaskamai, it means to be It caused to be favorably inclined or disposed. It means to propitiate or conciliate. That's what the word means. What does propitiate? That means to satisfy. Saying, God, would you turn your wrath away from me and be kind towards me? Not because I deserve it. This verb is used only here in in Hebrews 2, verse 17, talking about the atonement that Christ made. And then in Romans 3.25, a passage that Nate read earlier, Hear how the word is used. Hear the context of how the, this is the, the noun uh, based on the same, the same root. Romans 3.25, speaking of Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. You say, what does that word propitiation? To be a satisfaction. Here's what the word presupposes is God is holy, and because he is holy, he hates sin all sin. Not just really bad sin, but all sin. Sin, just the wrong motive in your heart, the thoughts, the, the, the good works that we do thinking, I'm going to impress God. That, God hates that as well. He must judge sin. His wrath burns hot against sin. And there's nothing that you and I can do to turn that away. God's infinite. We're finite. The only hope we have is for someone who is infinite to absorb the wrath of a holy God in our place. And that someone also needs to be a human being like you and me to justly bear that wrath. Enter Jesus, the perfect God-man, fully God, truly God, truly man, takes our place on the cross, bears God's wrath on the cross, not just like, hey, I'll do it 90%, and then I'll leave the other 10% up to like baptism or something. No, 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 no. Fully and completely, it is finished. Bears God's wrath. He took the blame. He bore the wrath, and we stand forgiven at the cross. Now, the publican did not understand all that. All he knows is God in heaven is merciful and he's gracious. He's in the temple courtyard where sacrifices are being offered day in and day out. A visual reminder, a gory reminder, a bloody reminder, a violent reminder of what sin costs God. Would you be merciful to me? Putting his confidence in what God would do for him, not what he would do for God. He'll say, God, I've come with ways to try to sort of, you know, do penance. No, be merciful, pleading for God and God alone to do what only God can do. Propitiation means that God's wrath is appeased and that we can be right with him. That's what's all wrapped up in that term, be merciful. And this other characteristic of his prayer is he saw his sin, be merciful to me, the sinner. There's no deflection, there's no defense, there's no downplaying. There's no saying, well, actually, this is a a personality defect or this is a psychological label. No, this is sin. 
I've rebelled against a holy God. Do you see your sin? And I'm saying this not to just, I'm not preaching this morning just to people who are unconverted. Now, if you're here today and you're like, I don't know what it means to be a Christian, and this is an awesome message for you to hear, but I'm speaking to Christians as well. Do you see your sin with clear eyes? Do you see your sin as God sees it? Do you evaluate your heart against the law of God? We're going to be taking the Lord's Supper at the end of the message today. We don't come to the Lord's Supper because we have it all together. We come to the Lord's Supper precisely because we don't and we need Jesus. And it is a reminder that even as a believer who has been justified and is secure in Christ, I still need His grace and forgiveness every single day. I need the continual cleansing of the blood of Christ. And that's what the Lord's Supper, that's what, the, that's what communion reminds us of, is what Jesus has done for us, his finished work on the cross, and the fact that I continually trust that and need that. This guy saw his sin. He doesn't trot off to a therapist to get himself a handy-dandy label, or he doesn't blame his parents for a harsh upbringing. He doesn't blame the Romans for being coercive. He owns his sin. Listen, that is a necessary step to becoming heaven's citizen. It's to have this kind of, to speak this language. This is the language you must learn if you're going to be heaven citizen. If you don't speak this kind of language, you are not a citizen of heaven. You are a citizen of hell. No matter how good you might be on the outside, no matter how moral you might be, no matter how many things that you can list out as good deeds, no matter how much you are better than other people, so to speak, if you don't speak this language, that's not the place of your citizenship. Now, notice the results. What profound results. We've got the Pharisees speaking the language of earth and the accent of hell, a speech full of self-justifying pride. We've got the publican speaking fluently the language of heaven. And listen, though the Pharisees stood closer to the temple, the publicans stood closer to God. So we get this result in verse 14. I tell you, that's Jesus authoritatively as God in the flesh. This is not just his opinion, this is his declaration. I declare to you that this man, the one he just talked about, the publican, this man, you know how we use the word this and that? This is something close to me, this pulpit is right here, that door is far from me. This one, the publican Jesus, he's close to me. That one, the, 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 the Pharisee, far from me. This man went down to himself. So you come up to the temple and you go back down from the temple. So it gives us a literally a naturally rising and coming down in the story. He went down to his house. He went home. He went back to his regular life, justified. Now, that's fascinating. Notice the tense of that, Um, perfect tense in the Greek. Here's what that means. Is he was justified? There's a point where God declares him righteous, and he remains in a state of being justified. This is really important because, listen, here's what the, the Roman Catholic Church will teach is, yeah, you're sort of justified by faith, but it's sort of a lifelong process that you may or may not finish out. The Bible says justification is a declaration of God that happens the instant that you believe. Did the publican clean up his life to be justified? The answer is no. Did he have a change in his character that that God was like, well, well, let's see, when there's really some real change, then you're, no, based on the fact that he pled for mercy he was immediately declared righteous. His standing changed. It's like when the, you know, when the pastor says, I now pronounce you man and wife. There is a change in your legal standing. You're now a married couple, even if there's not anything intrinsically inside of you that changes. When God declares us righteous, a legal declaration of not guilty and actually positively and purely and perfectly and eternally righteous in my sight. Why? Because Jesus kept God's law perfectly. Because Jesus lived a sinless life, Jesus bore our penalty on the cross, and that is put on our bank account. It's like you show up to the bank account, you go log on to your bank today, and you're like, oh man, like someone took my credit card, and I'm like $18,000 in the red. That's not good. Um, You're in the hole, and you're like, I have no way to dig out of that. And then you log on later, and someone graciously was like, hey, I heard about this, and they just dumped $100,000 in your bank account. Not only wipes out the debt that you owe, but you now have enough money for a long time, hopefully. Like, you don't go blow it all in one trip to Walmart. Uh, That's the idea. Justification, we are imputed the righteousness of Jesus, not based on our earnings, not based on our deeds. This is on the basis of faith alone. Not faith and some good deeds, but faith alone alone. Those are the verses that Nate read earlier in the service. Now to him that worketh not, but believeth on him who justifies who? 
not the godly, who justifies the ungodly while we are still sinners. He declares us righteous. That's what justified means. That's the one guy, the, the publican, wicked sinner, declared righteous. Now, I believe his life would have changed. We see in the life of Zacchaeus, there is a transformation. Something else that happens when you become a Christian is you are born again. You are given a new heart that loves God and that keeps his commandments. And through the Christian life, works do come out that confirm the fact, that prove the fact that you have been justified to such a degree that, that James says faith without works is dead. So I'm a Christian, I've been justified, but there's no change in your life. You ain't been justified. But listen, they are not the basis. They are the result of us being declared righteous. So we got the one guy being justified, the other not. And then we get this aphorism, this, this saying at the end that Jesus has spoken many times. Everyone who exalts himself, I'm going to lift myself up by my own bootstraps. Spiritually, be a base. By the way, that's actually like an impossible task. Like try it, like grab your bootstraps and try to lift. You're not going anywhere. Uh, those who try to exalt themselves and, and put themselves up before God and save themselves, he says, will be future tense on the day of judgment, abased. There is going to be a day of judgment. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, Revelation tells us. You, you will die one day. That's why we get so uncomfortable with funerals and Everybody, like, freaked out so much with COVID and all these things because we don't like to face our mortality. You will die one day. Your life will come to an end, and you will stand before God. And again, the standard is not, okay, tell me how you measured up to, to everyone else. The standard will be, are you perfect like God? I don't think there's any one of us here who would have the audacity to be like, yep, I'm as perfect as... No, no, we are all sinners. And not only just like, oh, I just missed. No, we go the opposite way. Let's be honest. We love to tell lies. We love to deceive. We love to steal glory for ourselves. We love to indulge in lust. We love to indulge in deception. It's not that we just commit sin. We love sin and are rightly condemned by God. Our only hope is to plead for mercy on the basis of what Jesus did on the cross for us. One way we could think of this is how Charles Simeon put it. Never are you higher in God's esteem than when you are lowest in your own. And that's countercultural. When I see myself as I really am before God, not any false humility. Oh, I'm the worst sinner. There was someone who one time heard John Wesley preach. This woman came out and says, oh, Brother Wesley, I am the worst of all sinners. Sort of hoping that he'd be like, oh, no, no, you're good. He's like, yep, you're right. That's true. And then she was offended. We're not talking about that kind of false humility where you pretend to be humble so people will come and give you a pat on the back. Genuinely seeing yourself as you are before God. Never you higher in God's esteem than when you are lowest in your, in your own. Great reversal here. So where does this leave us? If you've been justified, forgiven, because you've put your faith in Christ alone to forgive you, you're right with God. You have the very righteousness of Jesus on your account. Be exalted on Judgment Day. You'll be welcomed to his presence on Judgment Day, not because of what you've done, but because of what he's done, which gives us absolutely zero shred of credit that we can claim. If you're sitting here this morning saying, well, I know I'm going to heaven because I, if the first person pronoun is coming in there at all, like we've got a problem. I'm justified before God because Jesus died on the cross for sinners, and here's the only place where I is going to come in, and I'm relying and clinging to that and that alone. Where is boasting then? It is shut out. It is locked. The door is barred and boasting on the outside. It is excluded by what law of works? Nay, by the law of faith. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. Okay, even the faith to believe is the gift of God. Not by works. Why? Lest any man should boast. God has set up salvation and the gospel in such a way that we don't take any credit. He gets all the glory, which is why we come week after week after week and celebrate amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Like, we should never, ever get tired of singing hymns like that because it's true. If this morning during the worship your heart was cold, amazing love, like, maybe you have lost sight of the gospel. Lost sight of the gospel. We need reminders. We need to continue taking classes in this this language, right? Learning this fluency to speak the language of heaven. So let me just give you some points of application as we, as we land the plane here before we come to the table. 
How can we continue growing in speaking the language of heaven, this language of humble confession? Some applications that flow out of this. Number one, stop comparing yourself to other people. Just stop. Knock it off. We quickly slip into self-congratulatory comparisons. And by the way, I am saying this to myself. I, I, I'm there being like, oh, look at them. Oh, wait, there I am, like the, the Pharisee. So easy to fall in love with just constant outrage. Secondly, recognize your own blindness. Here's the thing about sin. Not only does sin like, lead us to rebel against God, but sin deceives us. To where we, we, we become blind to the fact that I'm even sinning. That's just how sin works. You've got blind spot mirrors on your car because there's part, things that you can't see. In our lives, sin blinds us to glaring sins in our own lives like pride and deception to where we just get so comfortable with it we no longer see it as sin. We need the Word of God to constantly search our hearts. We need times like coming to the Lord's table once a month for times to say, God, search my heart and see if there's any wicked way in me. We need brothers and sisters in Christ who will come and speak God's word and be like, hey, man, I'm, I'm seeing some stuff here. Like, if somebody does that for you who confronts you lovingly, thank them. Uh, so recognize your blindness. Third, remember mercy. Remember, we have to constantly remind ourselves. Israel comes out of Egypt, God's like, I want you to remember what I've done, so I'm going to institute an annual reminder, the Passover. Jesus goes to the cross and he says, this do in remembrance of me. Why? Because we suffer from gospel amnesia. We forget how sinful we are, how holy God is, and what Jesus has done. We forget our past condition. We forget God's kindness. And listen, the more we forget, the more we slip back into being a Pharisee, and the more we judge. And listen, the more we remember, the more we will forgive. Those who drink deeply from the wells of divine grace are quick to point others to that same well. So remember mercy. Another Suggestion to speak this language well. Don't compare yourself. Recognize your blindness. Remember mercy. Throw yourself on Jesus. Only sinners ask for pardon. Okay, it's absurd to say, please forgive me, but I've not actually done anything wrong. Like, okay, that's not really, no. Sinners ask for pardon. Only the humble seek grace, for only the humble need it. We come to Jesus broken, empty, guilty, sinful, hungry, dead, filthy. And listen, we find him to be the one who repairs the broken, who fills the empty, who forgives the guilty, who transforms the sinful and satisfies the hungry, raises the dead and cleanses the filthy. That's who he is. So run to Jesus over and over again. That is what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom. Let's bow our heads together as we respond to to God's word.